Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to ShiftingCulturePodcast.com to interact or donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to get notified when new episodes come out each Tuesday. And if you're thinking about it, go ahead and leave a rating and review of the show on your favorite podcast app. It would help us out tremendously. Previous guests on the show have included Onia Okawabi, Mark Demaz, and JT Thomas. You could go back, listen to those episodes, and more. But today's guest is George Yancey. Dr. George Yancey is a professor of sociology at Baylor University. He has published several research articles on the topics of institutional racial diversity, racial identity, academic bias, and anti-Christian hostility. His latest book, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism, is the subject of a lot of our conversation today. I got a lot of helpful steps out of this conversation, and I hope you do too. It's a really good one. I really enjoyed my conversation with George Yancey. So here he is. Enjoy. George, welcome to the podcast. Uh, It's exciting to have you on. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, I'd love to to hear some of your journey uh, with Jesus and how does your relationship with Jesus inform some of your work and your writing? Sure. Uh, I became a Christian in uh, college and... uh, and so uh, I grew up in the church, as most African-Americans d- did, and became a Christian in college. I, you know, got discipled in, in mostly, uh, mostly a white ministry. From that point on, I uh, grew and really, you know, this was a little while ago where, where racial tensions were still, you know, fairly high in our country. And so, uh, you know, so I dealt with racism but it, you know, I, I didn't want to dominate my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this changed when I was in uh, in grad school, when I fell for a white woman, and uh, and but her her mom, who was not a Christian, uh, her mom w- would not even meet with me, mm-hmm. and so that sort of got me into thinking along the lines of, boy, this is a problem that really needs to be dealt with. Uh, as a Christian, I think I, I approach it from a different angle than a lot of others do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I approach, uh, you know, one, 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 one way I would say it is, you know, if you're approaching it from a more humanistic perspective, 
do you understand the, the value of human beings? Mm. Or you don't understand human depravity. As a Christian, I understand both. You know, for a different reason, I see humans as incredibly valuable, but I also understand that human depravity is, yeah. is a, and, and that helps to shape my approach towards this. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's that's helpful. So as we we start to frame this conversation, I'd love to hear uh, where we're at right now uh, in society, and if we don't uh, really embrace what what you're saying is this unifying alternative uh, mm-hmm. to colorblindness and anti-racism that you're trying to purport in in your book Beyond Racial Division. If we're not going to embrace that, what are some of the cycles that we're doomed to repeat? Uh, if we're not going to try to get this unifying vision? Well, you know, you can think about it as, you know, in our country, when it comes to talk about racial issues, there's two powerful forces. One represents colorblindness, which is, let's just ignore race. One represents anti-racism. You can look at D'Angelo and Kinde, you know, Kinde and all that sort of work. And these are two powerful forces, and they're Mm -hmm. fighting against each other. And so one will temporarily get the upper hand, and, uh, and they'll, they'll win for a while, and the other one will get up right And we just keep going around and around in circle on this. So you'll have a racial incident, and you know the more anti-racism, anti-racism forces will protest that and, and fight against that. But then that dies down, and the more colorblind forces begin to counter-protest, and, and then we, you know, uh, look at the school board elections. Yeah. You know, right now, a lot of times, uh, a lot of the people who are more anti-racist are losing their seats. Uh, mm. People who are more African of colorblindness, but you know mm. that's going to that's going to come back around again. Yeah. So that we're just going to stay fighting against each other until we mm. figure out a proactive way of ending that fighting, and that's what I hope to offer. Mm. And so, what are s- some of those things to be able to end that fight? I know for me, if I'm uh, really going after you, so George, say if we have some oppo- uh, an opposing viewpoint, um, mm. and if we're looking at each other. Um, I would see you as the the problem because you have an opposing viewpoint to me. But if we're actually just looking, turning our, our shoulders and looking at the problem itself um, and both saying, hey, let's actually tackle the problem and our different viewpoints and our varying uh, ideas could actually uh, help solve these. It's a better posture to take. We also we always have this fight mentality. How can we get a better posture so that we can help have better conversations? You know, part of it is we have to make a commitment to it. And so we have to think about, well, why why should I commit to that? And, you know, here's the thing. If you're in the middle of the fight, so if if we're continuing to get together, if I believe that I can win and put you down for good, I don't have to deal with you any longer, then my incentive is to try to do that. So so I can you know, shut you up so that you can't have your ideas out, but only my ideas can be out there. And uh, if I think that that's what's going to happen, then I have an incentive. What I'm saying is that that is not likely to happen in, in any time in the near future <laughs> for, for either side. Yeah. You know, you only think you're going to be able to shut them up for a little while and you're only going to win temporary victories. Mm. So if I become convinced that that is not a sustainable solution, now I have to start looking for a sustainable solution. Yeah. And sustainable solutions begin with, okay, let's stop fighting. What can we work to, because I want you to work with me on the solution right. instead of get it against me. Uh, one of the reasons why solutions are not sustainable is you impose a solution and half the country is fighting against you. 
Hmm. Eventually, they're going to be able to tear it down. Yeah. So what we want is, is to find solutions where we can work together rather than apart from one another. Hmm. I mean... <laughs> That sounds like something in in almost all facets of life, um, right? We're yeah, we're right. so polarized right now in America uh, that you know we're just fighting on either side, and that, but there is this majority of people that actually want to have some some constructive conversation of yeah. how to move forward, and right. not just hear the shouting on both mm-hmm. sides. Um, what are some steps that we could take to have these constructive conversations? So what I would suggest is, you know, first, we've got to learn, we got to learn how to have these conversations. And so, you know, in my book, I talk about, you know, some of the steps, one of which is like active listening. Mm. So if, if I want, think about it this way. If you are in competition at work with someone else that you think you can beat down and eventually just take their job, then you may not care about listening to them that much you, you may be able to just get ahead but if you're in a relationship that you hope lasts the rest of your life you know if you're married uh you can win the fight today that's going to cost you later on mm-hmm. and we all know this anyone has been married more than two seconds knows that this is the reality yeah so rather than win right then i don't care you know i'm talking about man woman whatever you know rather than win right then you're, you're better off bringing that person along with you. Mm. And the only way you're going to do that is you, if you understand where they're coming from. And that's what active listening is. Mm. Active listening is listening for comprehension and understanding, not for argument. Hmm. We get into a base where we listen for argument. So we listen to find the weak point so we can attack. Yeah. Mm. Okay, in debate, that makes sense. Yeah. On an ongoing relationship, that doesn't. We need to listen so I understand where you're coming from. So that when I propose a solution, I take into consideration what your needs are. Hmm. Likewise, if you're doing that with me, we'll actually begin to construct solutions that are that include more people in, are more sustainable, buying it. So active listening, effective communication, how can we communicate with one another in ways that others can hear us? Because hmm. there is research that shows that when people feel threatened by the communication, they literally cannot hear you. Yeah. They, they, they turn off. Mm. They're there. You're saying, well, the sound's going to their ears, but they're not hearing you. Mm. So I have to learn how to, and once again, marriage is another great opportunity. We've learned, we learn over time what we can say to our spouse that works and what we can say to our spouse that does not work. Yeah. And if we're smart, we learn to say things that do work and avoid the things that don't work. Mm. All right. Yeah. And we know this. We know this how you build relationships. We got to take some of those same steps here. Hmm. I can learn how to talk to people who disagree with me in ways that they can actually hear me, not in ways where I can win the argument, gain Facebook points, stuff like that, but where they can actually hear me so that we can work things out. Hmm. So those are a couple of the of the mechanisms that we need to learn how to do across racial lines if we're going to have collaborative conversations. Yeah. So in this uh, racial conversation that we're having to say, let's set up in a way where we all have, have dignity, hope, and we're setting up uh, fairness for 
for all people and for yeah. setting up equity. Um, I think we need to have equitable treatments across the board. Um, and to be able to do that, a lot of times what's happened in the past is we've had individual conversations uh, with people of, of different colors, of different races, uh, different ethnicities and saying, hey, let's just hear our stories back and forth. Uh, yeah. But I think there needs to be something uh, more tangible and practical that we could yeah. take something, a conversation and actually move the ball forward a little bit. Um, so do we do that individually? Do we do that in community? And how, how can we do that? I think we need to do it in both. You know, I think, I think we need to learn as individuals how to have these better conversations. And then we need to address social structures and communities mm. on how to have these conversations. I like what you said about, you know, we, we hear each other's stories, which there's a role for that. Yeah. You know, I need to understand the people's stories. But the reason why I like the term collaborative conversation is when we look at the definition, it's goal-oriented. Mm. So it's not merely hearing, as important as that is. Once I don't want to dismiss that or, or denigrate that. You know, I want people to hear my story. I need to hear your stories. As important as it is, that's not enough. We have conversations that are going towards a goal, trying to solve a problem, and, and working together, building on each other's ideas to solve that problem. So that's a, a really key element that we can't neglect. Yeah. Yeah. And th that's really, really important. You know, I think that there, you know, in these conversations, there's all all sorts of power dynamics, uh, privilege dynamics. Uh, we have unconscious biases uh, that we, we all have that we carry around that we are not aware of um, that we need to uncover. Um, how can we take all of these different dynamics um, and strip some of those away so that we can be on equal footing as we're having goal-oriented conversations. So, you know, the, the way I see it is if I am listening to you actively and active listening, I have a responsibility to be able to put your, your ideas, your, your feelings in my words, the way that you understand it. Hmm. So when I, do my research, my, when I interview people, for yeah. example, one of the techniques I use is what I hear you saying is, and then I try to put it in, in, in my words, but their ideas. And when I can do that, then I can move on. Because mm. that tells me that I know basically what they're coming, where they're coming from, mm. all right? So if we, have, if we put that responsibility on ourselves, so it's not enough that I get in a conversation, I'll tell you my ideas. Huh. I must also understand your ideas. And now, is this going to eliminate bias completely? No. But what it forces me to do is not just focus in on what I want, but also to be concerned about what you want. Hmm. And that does not mean that I have to give in to you. Yeah. All right. <laughs> does that mean that I know what you want and I'll give it all to you? Uh, what it does mean is, okay, I, you know, it humanizes you, first of all. Yeah. A lot of times when we, when we have these groups that oppose us, we can make them, you know, we, we, could, we could characterize them in inhuman terms. If I am trying to understand where you're coming from, so that's important mm. first off. Yeah. And, and now I have a responsibility to take that into consideration when I'm thinking about how our way forward. Yeah. All right. I, you know, I know Joshua is thinking this way. Hmm. Are there ways I can tweak what, I'm, what I want so that his needs can be met? And it should be in my interest that you, you feel your needs met because then now you're going to help me with that. Mm, yeah. 
no, this is something that we should we should want to build on together. Unfortunately, too often we don't. Yeah. And I mean, on, on both sides of this conversation, we all, uh, I mean, this is the, the thing, you know, I've done a lot of cross-cultural work uh, in my life. And so I've worked with a lot of Arab Muslims, uh, Syrian refugees. Um, and so people of cross-cultures, like I, we teach cross-cultural communication a lot um, and seeing that everybody has dignity and worth and value. But oftentimes, you know, we're, we have... Uh, and not just in in race, but in all sorts of things. There's you, we have in groups and we have out groups, and we think that everybody who's not a part of our group, uh, they're the enemy somehow. It just yeah. even subconsciously. I, we had a fundraiser uh, just last on Friday night. Uh, we, you know, one of my friends invited an African American woman, and she heard where the fundraiser was taking place, which was a uh, a mostly white neighborhood and she she said hey am i going to be safe if i go there um mm -hmm. and a lot of my my white friends if she went into to her predominantly african-american neighborhood was that would i be safe going there and we have these uh predetermined uh things in our head without having conversations and we stay in our little little boxes. We stay within our little groups. How could we start to cross pollinate a little bit so that we could start to open our minds up that there is a bigger world out there, yeah. and that everybody is actually has uh, some worth from God, and that we, they are valuable to have these conversations with? Yeah. So one thing that's happened over the past several years is we've seen more and more interracial friendships developing. So. You know, we're talking about 20, 30 years ago. Part of it would be, well, go go make friends with people of different races. And, and a lot of people will go, okay, I need to do that. You know, with the internet and, and with uh, a lot of uh, what we've done as far as being able to communicate across uh, boundaries and such, there are a lot more interracial friends. So I think, you know, there's exceptions, obviously. Yeah. But most people have some interracial friends. I think the key is, do you have those dangerous conversations with them? Mm. Understanding that that happens after you develop a certain amount of friendship. Yeah. You know, you don't meet someone first off and then have these sort of conversations with them, obviously. <laughs> uh, well, some people can, but I'm not one of those people. Uh, you know, when I was in college, my best friend was a white guy. And I remember, I mean, we were close. We were like this. We played basketball together. We went to the Baptist Student Union together. So we talk about God, talk about sports, politics, girls, you know, all that sort of stuff. Except I never talked about racial issues. Mm. You know, I did not feel safe. I know that's the case because I had another friend who was not quite as close as, as me and him, but who's Hispanic. He, I talked about racial issues with. Mm. Not, my, not my best friend. Not the guy who was closer to me than him. Mm. Now, what is that saying about me? It's saying that what I'm saying is, I am not going to trust, even though you're my best friend, you know, I, I'll yeah. tell you what the girls I had secret crushes on, you know, I, I, you know, we, we talk about the basketball game, we talk about, I talk to you about God and, you know, my victories and frustrations, you know, I talk about everything, but I won't talk to you about my race. Hmm. So that's on me. That's on me for having not broached the subject. It's never, I can't think of a time where I started the conversation and he shut, shut me down. That was on me. Hmm. So we have to be willing to risk the conversation with people that we, they've drawn closer to and see where it goes. Now, there will be times where that person's not ready for it, okay? So this is not a magical, 
you know, yeah. in my situation, I can't, you know, maybe he would have shut me down. He, I didn't give him the chance to because of my own failings. You know, there, there are times where people are not ready for that conversation. That's fine. You find someone who is. Hmm. That's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to take risks in having a collaborative conversation and having a productive conversation with people and knowing that, you know, instead of approaching it that I got to convince this person my ideas, hmm. what do you approach it? I'm curious about what this person thinks about and why they think about that way. That's a different type of conversation. I, I don't have skin in the game whether or not they come to my ideas or not, but I'm trying to learn about them. Hmm. That's a more healthy way of approaching how to have a better conversation with others rather than trying to convince them, no, you got to believe in this public policy that I so desperately, desperately believe in. Ah, that's really helpful. That's really good. Uh, you know, I think from the civil rights movement on to today, I mean, we've made some some good strides. You know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, created some some really good things, but now we're not we're not really talking a lot about overt racism, um, but there is a lot of systemic problems. Um, for you know, hundreds of years, we've had uh, a system that that really dis disvalued uh, African Americans. Um, so how can one we help people understand that there is there are still some strides that we need to make that mm -hmm. that this conversation is not finished. It's not mm -hmm. over. And of course, we know after the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and and others that there, of course, the, a lot of racial things blew up and we ha started to have a conversation, but there are still people on both sides, African-Americans, white people say, hey, there's not really overt racism now. Um, yeah. How can we have this conversation saying, hey, we need to do some more work? Right. So here's how I like to sort of phrase uh, that dilemma. All right. So I think there's two facts that, that few people will argue about as it concerns race. I think fact number one is that we have a history of racial abuse. I think that, that you know, uh, my, my most conservative friends do not deny that we've had a history of racial abuse. Yep. You know, everyone acknowledges that. Fact number two is that those, that abusive practices today is largely gone. So, you know, if you want to talk about slavery metaphorically, that's one thing. There are not black slaves in the United States today the way they yep. were in the 1800s. It's, that's just not true. Uh, now, so this comes down to the question, all right, given this history of racial abuse, how do we create a fair society, all right? Because this history of racial abuse obviously has, has had an impact into our society. You don't create a fair society by saying, okay, let's just outlaw slavery because slavery is outlawed. Hmm. So what are we gonna do? That's where the disagreement is. Some individuals say, well, we had history of racial abuse, they agree, we don't have, you know, the, the abusive situation today, so everything is okay now. Others will say we've had the history of racial abuse. We don't have those same things today, but they have developed. Now, the evidence is that, yeah, what's happened historically impacts people of color today. We still have subtle forms of racism, although yeah. we don't have the sort of Jim Crow or we don't have the internment centers or the reservations and that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, we don't have to the same degree, obviously, but we still have. And there's a lot of evidence on that. And so if someone asks me, you know, where's the overt risk from today? 
I'm going to agree that we don't have the same sort of overt racism we used to have. You know, I'm not going to try to make an argument that we're we're white supremacists and the class running rapid all over everywhere. Yeah. You know, I think I think that that's a unsustainable argument. It's a silly argument. It's not true. But what I would argue is, you know, let's look at some research such as uh, driving while black. There's research yeah. that African Americans are more likely pulled over than whites, all other things being equal. Uh, we extend the criminal justice system. We can look at, you know, incarceration rates. Uh, and I know people will come back and say, well, they commit more crimes. There's a controls people apply to that and still show that African Americans are more likely to be convicted in city jail for longer sentences and Hispanic Americans too. We can look at uh, evidence about done by housing audits on how African Americans and Hispanic Americans are less likely to get a job. All of them being equal. We can look at the evidence in our medical healthcare system. There's a lot of research showing enduring racial district treatment in that. Look at uh, the enduring effects of residential segregation and the factors behind that. So there's a lot of evidence out there showing that we don't have the same thing we had back then, mm. but it's still through here today. Yeah. Because it's no because it's not over, we can't just pass a law getting rid of it. We have to figure out how to handle that. And that's where we have to have the conversation. Mm. So how do we deal with that? We have to hear from everyone on that conversation. Mm. Because we've got to find solutions for that that's sustainable, that brings people in. It doesn't exclude people. Yeah. And my criticism of some people who recognize these enduring effects is they say, here's our solution. If you don't take it, you're, you know, you're engaged in white supremacy or, or, or you're engaged in racism, stuff like that. That's not productive. Yep. We gotta have productive conversations rather than mm. the sort of uh, uh, conversations we, we we have been having. Um, well, you just mentioned uh, a lot of different systemic issues, um, and so uh, and you just went down the line and went down the list, and so and a lot of those are interconnected, mm-hmm. um, and so is there some things? How do we actually engage in these collaborative conversations to have some? constructive like change of systems on a yeah. whole because a lot of times we just put band-aids on things um mm-hmm. and say hey i'm gonna you're you know we're basically the emergency room in the hospital right, and yeah. we'll take care of it but we're actually not take caring taking care of all the symptoms of what right. is happening and the causes of all of these issues how do we step back to have those conversations and solve these things systemically. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe there is some, some policy or some issue we could just tackle and it would just set up this cascading effect to all the other issues that may exist. I've not found that. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I have concluded and, and, and I could be wrong on this and maybe someone will say, Oh, have you thought about doing this? And this would do that. I believe that the best we can do is just one problem at a time. Because, hmm. you know, when you have a disagreement with people, try to solve it all at once, they usually solve nothing. Yeah. So, you know, what's a pressing problem at a given time for a given institution? And so maybe for a community, it's how, you know, a police community relations. Maybe for a school is how are we going to teach our kids about racial issues? You know, maybe for a church, it's about how are we going to change our service so that we could be more inclusive of people of other races and not drive off people who are already here. Hmm. You know, I think you have to deal with it one issue at a time at hmm. this point in time. Now, what I hope will happen is as we deal with these issues one at a time, we get better at it. Yeah. It makes it faster, more easier to deal with other issues. And 
if we do enough issues, then yeah, I think I think they are interconnected to a great degree. So if we are able to uh, let's we're able to do get better police community relations, yeah. where where you know where crime goes down, as well as occasions of police abuse, you know that's going to impact the economic situation of that neighborhood. It's not the only thing that's going on impact it, but it, but yeah, part, one of the reasons why stores don't move into neighborhoods is they don't they don't like the high crime. Yeah, understandable. So if crime goes down, then that reason goes out, and then now you can bring some industries in the neighborhood. Hmm. So I think by dealing with it, eventually we will have a more wide-ranging impact. But I think that if, you know, I don't want people to get their hopes up saying, "Oh, we'll have this one conversation on this issue, and it's going to, you know, it's going to really solve solve the whole problem." Because it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's way too massive, and I, you know, if we can't solve one problem at a time. Uh, and do that and not just really have band-aids at the yeah. very end, you know, yeah. downline, but we're actually going upstream to say, hey, there's a bigger issue at hand. And so yeah. and each problem, uh, all sorts of different things come into play. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's family issues. There's issues of people not feeling like they belong somewhere. They feel seen. Mm -hmm. There's issues. Yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of issues that we could tackle. And yeah. it's really uh, a mess, but there is something away which I love saying, okay, we're not dictating how we're going to move forward uh, from mm -hmm. one side or the other, but we're saying, hey, we both have some some things to bring to the table. Let's yeah. sit down and actually bring all of our things to the table and see what is the best way to move forward together. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, so fruitful and very helpful. How do we do that um, you know, within within the church, um, yeah. we still have a. I mean, we're getting better having more multi ethnic churches, um, mm. but it's still a small percentage of churches. We still have probably uh, more in the church than in yeah. than in society. We have mm. we have different groups of churches. Yeah. Um, so in the church, how do we have this this multi-ethnic conversation within a church to bring about uh, diversity through the unity that we have in this with the same spirit? Yeah, I think the last I heard is 12% of all churches are multiracial, mm. uh, which is up from about 7.5% about 20 years ago. So we are improving, but we could definitely do a better job. Uh, you know, uh, what I would say is we have the body of Christ because I think that the solution I'm advocating has a biblical basis for it. Yeah. So we should be leading the way on having some conversations. If your church is not racially diverse, then maybe you can find other churches that are of a different race that have a, are like-minded wanting to have these honest conversations and engage with them. So that's one thing. Uh, I, I do think that thinking about how we can diversify our churches can be part of the solution. Uh, there's more research now on how we can be more successful in doing that than there has been in the past. Hmm. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a church, obviously if you're a church in some place like North Dakota, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. Uh, but most of our churches are in in urban or suburban areas where where they do have access to multiple racial ethnic groups, and so that is very plausible. And and churches can think about that uh, as one of their priorities. You know. In order to engage in, uh, and and like I said, there's 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 work out there. There's books out there that talk about how to do this. 
So, so you know, I, I can go into that if you want, but there's, there is some work out there on how to do this. And then as we bring in, that gives us an opportunity for those conversations. Mm-hmm. Once again, you can have friends of different races and not have the conversation like I did with my best friend. I didn't with my best friend. Yeah. Uh, so, so we can bring people in and then have those conversations. But if for some reason we are not positioned to become more diverse or we want to have those conversations before we get diverse, we can look for churches within our, perhaps our denomination uh, you know, churches that are like-minded in other ways yeah. who also want to have this conversation and then try to engage in it. Hmm. Yeah, and I love, one One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is that, you know, f- especially for us in the church, that uh, our identity first and foremost should be in Christ, that we are all beloved children of God. Um, mm-hmm. And that should be our first identity. Um, mm-hmm. And so we could see all of us as as that as children of god and it should do uh i think it should actually bring us to a place where we see each other as as equals as people coming from the same place uh receiving the same grace um that we do have that human depravity that we need god uh to help us and we say i I'm going to come under that and be a child of God. We need to to follow the example of Jesus and humble ourselves um, yeah. one to another. Um, how do you see that uh, identity issue? Should that is that uh, key for us going forward so that we could have that unity together? Yeah, I do think that uh, you know my identity starts off with being a child of God. Doesn't mean I don't have other identities, but yep. it's, my, it's my core identity, and and that can give us a basis for having commonalities across racial lines if we allow it to. Uh, and there is research that shows that when we identify with others, we uh, have less bias and prejudice towards them. Hmm. And so, so yeah, so we start off with that. And you know, my theology also tells me that even those who do not identify with Christ, even those who are not part of the church. Are also image bearers. Yes. So, uh, so what that tells me is that you know uh, that I I have to treat you as you're an image bearer, whether or not you you agree to me on, on Christ or not. Uh, and that includes on racial issues. Hmm. That includes that when I'm interacting with someone on racial issues, they too are an image bearer. You hmm. know, just just as so much as I am. They, they they may not have my understanding of salvation and, and that sort of thing. You know, and and maybe maybe you know, and of course there's consequences to that. I acknowledge all that, but in this world, they're an image bearer, and mm. and, and they have like that, that worth of an image bearer. So I think that that should shape, you know. So my day in Christ, even when I'm dealing with someone who doesn't have that day in Christ, should shape how I approach them, mm. uh, and the sort of respect I should be looking to give to them. Mm. Yeah, and seeing people as image bearers are, is so important. One of the things I was thinking about earlier today uh, is that ethnicity. I said, is God's beauty dispersed in human form? Um, mm-hmm. And we see a lot of the times we we forget that, you know, we actually see aspects of the beauty of God in different ethnicities and cultures than we don't see in our own. Um, yeah. And so we actually, there's things that we're missing if we're not having these mm-hmm. conversations, if we're not working together, if we're not saying we want to create uh, this this new life together to move yeah. forward. We're missing even aspects of God and the beauty of God that we could find in different cultures and people and places. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I love being around people of different uh, cultures, different racial groups and different ethnicities. Uh, you know, we're not Africans because Africans are different from African-Americans. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there's so much I could learn from others when I'm, when I'm open to it. And I, and I don't think that I have to like deny the value of my own ethnicity or my own culture. Yep. It's our effort to say, you know, I see them in that culture. I just, that's not for me. And there's, there's, that's nothing sinful about that whatsoever. Yep. But a lot of times I learn from, from other cultures and, and, and it's a beauty to that. And so, you know, I think with the internet, more people are going to be exposed to that, but mm. Uh, you know, I think people who are not, they're really missing out on something. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd love to get back and and have you talk through a little bit why colorblindness is not complete and why anti-racism is not complete for us to move forward, forward and, with a unifying racial conversation. So, you know, and I've already touched on this, you know, colorblindness ignores the ongoing effect of of race in our society. And so, you know, as an, as a person of color, you know, when you are trying to deal with that, to have someone tell you, no, you don't have to deal with these problems. These problems are not real. Just doesn't work. You know, it's not something that 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 we can just accept and, and go on our, our merry way. Now, are there people of color or colorblind? Yes, there are. Uh, so I'm not speaking for all people of color. I'm just saying that for a lot of us who've experienced racism and continue to experience racism, not Jim Crow type racism, but still racism today, to ignore that is, is simply not an option. And so it's not an option really to our experiences. Mm. So, so that's not going to work as an ongoing solution. Having said that, are there times where I am colorblind? Absolutely. You know, when I'm grading my students' papers, I'm absolutely colorblind. When I used to play basketball before I got too old for that, you know, if the guy underneath the basket was a white or black, I didn't care. He's on my team. He's just getting the ball. Yeah. He needs to score. You know, if he misses the bucket, I don't care if he's black, I'm chewing him out on the way back to the court, you know. Yeah. You know, so 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 I'm not saying that there's not a place for colorblindness in our society at all. I'm saying as an overarching philosophy to deal with racism, it doesn't work. Hmm. Uh, now, anti-racism is a little bit more uh, nuanced because people ask, you know, what is anti-racism? Uh, to be against racism. Well, who's not against racism? Yeah. Uh, but when you read the literature on anti-racism, you realize it's, it's not just that. Mm. You know, uh, I read a lot of the literature, the popular literature on anti-racism. Uh, you know, it talks about being very proactive, that racism is, is multifaceted. And those, you know, are things that make a lot of sense. But the thing that I cannot get away from, from having read the literature on anti-racism, a lot of books, a lot of articles, and this comes up again and again and again, is that the role of whites is to do what people of color want them to do. Mm. Now, I'll just give you one example. You can find a lot of examples. And, you know, the most popular book was D'Angelo's book, Why yeah. Fragility. And once, I don't know if you read that book or not. In one section of the book, she talks about, you know, uh, you know, how she was talking to a bunch of people of color. And she's implying, because she said, you know, well, whites can do, whites cannot cry, whites cannot argue, whites cannot be silent, whites, you know. So whites can't do all these things. Hmm. So she says, says to people of color, what if white people just listen to you and then promise to do better? So she implies that's what that's the role of whites. Listen to people of color, promise to do better. <laughs> now, you're saying, well, that's just D'Angelo. Find me the anti-racism book that does not have, as one of his premises, the role of whites is to do what people of color want them to do. Yeah. And let me read that book, because I'm betting that a white person is not allowed to object. Hmm. 
that's a problem. That's a problem because it assumes that the people of color have all the answers. Now, you know, I'm, I'm an African-American, obviously. And so, yeah, it, that'd be nice if I could say, hey, I have all the answers. But I know what human depravity means. Yeah. I, I know I, I studied enough about uh, confirmation bias to know what that means. It means that I am biased. And the answers I'm going to find are the answers going to serve me in my time. Yeah. That's, that's, that's just reality. And it's naive to think that under the right conditions that people of color would not abuse this power hmm. to whites. And in fact, have abused this power under the right conditions against mm. whites. So yeah. that's not going to be an answer. That's mm. not going to be an answer. Once again, are there times where the principles of, color of anti-racism matter to me? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's really good for, for looking at problems and finding problems, but the answer just does not work. Mm. So both of those don't work, and they don't work for the same reason, because they're trying to impose a solution instead of working together to find a solution. Mm. And, you know, when... InterVarsity wanted, one of the names they offered my book was to be in between colorblindness and anti-racism. And I didn't like that because it implies that my solution is this much colorblindness or this much anti-racism. My solution is qualitatively different. Yeah. My solution is we work together to find the solution. And if, it, if, we, if the solution we find is totally colorblind and everyone's agree with that, that's fine. If it's totally anti-racism, everyone agrees with that, that's fine. Hmm. But we work together to find a solution rather than have it dictated hmm. to us by others. Hmm. So you, you talk about collaborative conversations to do that. Uh, and you also talk about mutual accountability. Um, and so what does that mutual accountability mean? Yeah, I mean, basically, I, I, mean, I try to use them interchangeably. Community accountability just means that we are all accountable to having a healthy conversation. You know, uh, and so we, we all are responsible. None of us can say, well, it's on, it's on you to do the conversation, but not me. That, mm. that, that is out the door. Now, I just want to be very clear because I think sometimes people get misconstrued about this. It is not saying that the solution, everyone's going to have the exact same responsibility. Right. And in fact, my belief is that a lot of the times, probably not all the time, but a lot of the times mm. in the solution, given our history of racial abuse, they were probably going to have whites doing more than people of color at this day and age. Hmm. That, that's my, now, I, I can't say that's the, what going to be the solution all the time or it should be the solution all the time. We still have to have the conversation. But that's my, my notion of what's likely to happen. Yeah. So the responsibility is not that we're going to wind up with the exact same responsibility, but going into the conversation, no one can say, you're not allowed to talk. Hmm. Or no one can say, I don't have to, uh, I don't have to respect you. I don't have to say things in the ways that, that, that you can hear because I can treat you whatever. No one's allowed to do that as we have the conversation. You know, once I, I started to engage in some of these things, one of the things that, that I had to fight was this uh, thing where I didn't want to use my voice because I didn't want to use my power as a white male um, in the conversation to sway things. And yeah. so I actually stifled my voice in the midst of mm -hmm. conversations. And I realized yeah. later that that wasn't very helpful, that I actually my voice yeah. actually matters. And, it, and yeah. I don't just have to be silent. Is there a proper use uh, or a better use of power um, within these conversations? Yeah, you know, as, you know the, the power dynamics are going to be there. I think acknowledging them is very health, helpful, very good. Of course, acknowledge that there's power dynamics. It changes from place to place. So yeah. there, you know, a lot of times as a white male, you do have power. There are times where you don't. 
Yeah. You know, I guarantee you, when I was playing basketball, if you walked on the court, you would not have a whole lot of power until you can show that you could play like Dirk Nowitzki. Yeah. You know, so, uh, <laughs> but, so I think acknowledging power uh, is something that's a good place to start. Uh, but we have to be careful that the acknowledgement of power is not saying, therefore, this person can't say anything in this conversation. Mm. Because, you know, if we get to that point, what we're saying is this group does not have stake in this conversation. Right. Uh, we don't have to hear from this group. And members of that group are going to pick up on that. And even if the people who are having a media conversation agree to it, other people are not going to agree to it. And now you're going to get the protest coming when you put out a solution and you didn't hear from this group. Yeah. So I, I think there is value to acknowledging the power. Mm. That's good. If you could... Uh give some people one or two takeaways of what you want them to to move forward if there's like these are the the two practical things that we could do to get the ball moving forward sure uh well if i should plug say buy my book first off <laughs> uh no i i say you know think about the conversations you have with people you care about you know your your spouse your children your your good friends and then think about how can you replicate that conversation on these issues with other people, which means that, you, that you're probably going to start with friends, all right? So yeah. you're not going to start with an acquaintance, you know, and, and that's not fair to that person to yeah. all of a sudden put this sort of burden on them. You know, start with your friends. Start with your friends. Say, you know what? I heard some of these ideas about having to have better conversations. I know we disagree on these racial issues. I'm going to talk about it in a way that's productive. So I got to understand where you're coming from. You want to, you got to understand where I'm coming from. And maybe we can talk about it and, you know, maybe we'll look, maybe we'll come to some agreement, maybe we don't. But I just think we just have to have a better conversation and see if you have some friends who will take you up on it. Not all of them will, but some of them may. Uh, I would not suggest doing this on social media. I suggest this is more one-on-one -on -one thing yeah. or, or, you know, at least on the, over the phone or something like that. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, also, to the degree that you have authority in organizations uh, and in corporations, wherever you're at, I would suggest that you look at when racial issues come up, finding ways in which you can say, hey, rather than just trying to bring in some sort of expert and give us all the solutions, can we find someone perhaps who leads us in communication? Hmm. Can we learn how to talk to one another and find solutions back that way rather than having a solution imposed? Because hmm. imposed solutions tend to get backlash. Hmm. So those are a couple of ways in which you might be able to incorporate some of what I'm talking about in your day-to-day -day life. That's great. Well, I hope everybody goes out and actually puts those into practice. Uh, a couple of uh, questions here I like to ask at the end. One, uh, if you could go back to your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give? Uh, take more risk in relationships. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Especially romantic ones. I was, I was pretty shy at 21 as far as yeah. romantic relationships. So I mm. wish I would taken more risks uh, at an earlier, at an earlier mm. life in my life. That's good. Yeah. Looking back, I think I should take have taken more risks in relationships yeah. as well. Yeah. I think that's really good advice and helpful for people to, to follow. Uh, yeah, anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? Uh, no, I've been really reading a lot of stuff for my quantitative medicine class, and you probably don't want to read that sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, so I, I can't recommend that, and then people actually like me. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny that I don't like a lot of the TV today. I'm, I'm about to sound really old, and I apologize. <laughs> no, and it's not, it's not. It's not like I'm going back to I Love Lucy, but I, you know the shows I'm watching are like about uh, you know, six or seven years old. 
Yeah. Uh, something like Burn Notice. You know, I'm going back and say, man, this is these are great characters. Everyone loves Raymond. I'm going back, man, this is great development. Yeah. And I, I have a hard time watching shows today because I just don't feel I know this makes me sound so old and old fashioned. I just feel like the characters are developed just a bunch of action and, and or or issues are thrown in your face or stuff like yep. that. And I just want to see characters developed and and then mm. you know, but yeah, so. <laughs> but I can't recommend anything right now. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's all right. Hey, burn notice. Everybody loves Raymond. Hey, those yeah. are good things that, yeah, and really good shows that I really enjoyed. Um, great, uh, George. How can people uh, connect with you? How can people get your book um, and other things that you've written? Yeah, so University Press. You can go through their website. You know, they have this book and other books I've written. Uh, obviously, Amazon. You get my book. If you want to contact me. You can either just, you know, you can look me up. I'm, I work at Baylor University, Department of Sociology, or you can go to georgeyancey.com. And Yancey is Y-A-N-C-E-Y. And the E is important because there is actually a George Yancey without the E. And we're hmm. different people. And we have different ideas. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, that's good. It's like somebody trying to Google Joshua Johnson. You're going to get uh, a lot of professional yeah. athletes and you're going to get a lot yeah. of people all over the place. It's kind of nice. Yeah. I'm on like page 35. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, good. Well, George, it was uh, a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having it. Uh, it's a needed conversation that we could actually move forward with collaborative uh, conversations together, that we could actually see a, a unified uh, human race saying that we're, we're moving forward together in racial issues, uh, that we could actually start to uncover some of our unconscious biases that we have so that we could have real conversations with one another. Uh, and I think that this is really profound and important. So thank you for your work. Uh, and thank you for the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.